0: Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all here. You do look pretty good today, like you always do. Well, are you ready to get down into the deep waters of Romans? Well, that was um, a little… that was fine. You're going to get it whether you're ready or not. The normal way of going through Romans at this point is to break down the first few chapters like this, Paul presents the bad news, then he presents the good news, and then he presents how you get the good news and make it your own. Or, to put it another way, Paul indicts the Gentiles in chapter 1. Generic humanity, bad. Then he indicts the moral person and the Jew in chapters 2 and 3, and then in the middle of 3, he begins to explain how redemption is in Christ alone and the importance of faith alone. So you've got the sinfulness of the Gentiles, the sinfulness of this moral man and the Jew, and then the righteousness of God and the way of redemption for all people. The normal way through through Romans is, is a universal explanation of salvation and redemption. But how do those chapters look? After we've put in all of this time, starting in the back of the book and working our way to the front, how does reading Romans backwards color this section of the gospel? Well, we're gonna find out, aren't we? Beginning in chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul is very clear about his description of his audience. We're not not going to read that. I'm assuming, hoping, you've read your update and you read Romans 1. And you've read it before, right? Amen. Amen. You love that chapter. The Gentiles, or the, the audience, is full of sin. And they suppress the truth, even though there's something about God that has been revealed to them. And knowing this God, they didn't honor Him or thank Him in their lives. And their lives became pointless. And dark. They said they were wise, but they became idol makers and idol worshipers. So God hands them over. Three times it says that. He gave them over to their base physical desires, including unnatural same-sex relationships. He, he describes this, this sin that embodies their entire life, and he keeps handing them over and things get worse and worse and worse but what's missing in this section so what do you assume is there but's not you do not find the words all humanity you don't find the words all creation you don't even find the word word all gentiles You get those words, but you don't get them until chapter 3, verse 9, and then obviously 323, for all of sin. Are we supposed to read all humanity back into this section of Romans 1? I don't know. I kind of don't think so. Because the emphasis in Romans 1, in this list of horrible things, is knowing the truth and knowing God... As creatures of God, they chose not to respond to God properly. God surrendered them to their free choices, and that leads them to desires run amok and this whole list of sin that you're probably very familiar with. Paul is clear that there is a connection between turning from God and God unleashing them to follow their own natural desires. You see, theology proper, what we believe about God and personal ethics are woven together and you cannot separate them. The sins cataloged in Romans 1 in this section, they are not the common sins of common sinners. Not everybody does this stuff. And I think what they are is a way that the Jewish people That's how they look at us Gentiles. And we see in this context a description of sin, not necessarily typical of a certain kind of believer, the Gentiles, the strong in in Romans. He's not universalizing sin, he's generalizing it. He's talking about the Gentiles, which is very different than talking to the Gentiles. And as Phoebe reads this opening section of the book of Romans, the Jews in the crowd, if you study the, the literature, they're very familiar with these descriptions of humanity. These themes are very common in Jewish wisdom literature. This is a very Jewish way to describe Gentiles. But Paul is about to turn the table on these Jewish listeners when chapter 2 opens up. There's a shift. Grammatically, he's all writing in chapter 1 in third person. In chapter 2, it's all second person. And he begins to specifically talk to the Jewish believers in these house churches. And the transition is huge. So we have to figure out what is Paul trying to say to them in Romans 1 and 2. And I think we are in a perfect position to understand the pastoral side, his heart, as he he writes this letter, because it's really more than just a description of personal salvation. It's there, but I think he wants to do something else, too. You see, the gospel of Paul is the story of Jesus the Messiah. It's the story of the Hebrew Scriptures and this Jewish Messiah who plans to bless and include all the people of all the nations. As long as they'll be loyal and obedient to him. And so even in the beginning of Romans, Paul is trying to talk to the Jews, the weak in Rome, about moral transformation. He's building a case that moral transformation, it doesn't come by strict obedience to the Torah but by living your theology. We saw living your theology at the end of the book. And Paul uses Romans one to set up these weak believers and he, he calls them judges or judge. They're, he, he, you know, they're, they're the judge that we meet in chapter two. He says in chapter two, verse one, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment, you who pass judgment do the same things. And and this Jewish person sitting there listening to this says, What? You just went through this catalog of horrible sins. And you're saying, I'm just as bad? Are you serious? Because Paul's purpose in Romans 1. It's not as much to cast judgment on the Gentiles as it was for Phoebe to look at the Gentiles and then once you get to chapter 2, her eyes change to the Jews, to the weak. The weak are the judge of Romans 2. And Paul wants them to know, you know what, you will be judged too. Romans 1 is talking about the Gentiles He's not talking to them. There's not stuff for them to do. And he's talking, this talking about the Gentiles is something that the judge in chapter 2, verse 1, really likes. Yeah. You let him have it, Paul. But by Romans 2, he's not talking about the Gentiles anymore, but he's talking to the weak, from Romans 14, the Jews, believers, the group who knows the Torah, the group who believes the Torah, the the group that expects Gentile converts to really go the whole way. You don't just follow Jesus. you got to follow the whole thing. Because we Jews, we know the will of God. And because the strong, these Gentile believers, are not doing the Torah, the weak judge them as inferior. You're uncommitted. To the fullness of the revelation of God in Moses. And don't miss this. Torah observance isn't the boundary marker for Paul. The boundary marker is that, is that they, Paul really cares that these Jewish believers are using the Torah as a club against the Gentile believers. That's the problem. Chapter 2, verse 1 is a stunning turnaround in in this beginning of this letter. Paul turns to the judgmental weak, the Jews, in a a stereotypical character which he creates called the judge. And in context, they would hear this, when the weak sit in judgment on the strong, you are opening yourselves up to the same judgment of the Gentiles, who I've just talked about in chapter 1. You're kidding me don't do this homosexual stuff we don't do all this this other stuff that's mentioned it's horrible sins in chapter one that's not us but that brings us i think to the main point of chapter two paul turns his attention to the weak these jewish believers in rome and his point is what they are just as guilty as these gentiles in chapter one your sins might be different but you're just as guilty and we know it's not easy to convince a good man of his guilt, is it? Because they truly believe they're better than everybody else. And that's what's going on here. Their sins might be different, but their guilt is the same. And in Romans 2, Paul shows the weak, the depth of their own hypocrisy. He turns against the judge, this, the weak and he argues that they're just as guilty as the depraved sinner of Romans 1. And how does he do that? He, he does it by showing and, and laying out for them, okay, in the great judgment of God, how's this going to play out? How's it going to work? And there's three principles of which God will use to judge on that day. And each one of them convicts that weak brother, the Jewish believer in Rome in this house church, that, that they are sinful. Now, my sermon this morning is for all of you who would much rather I stay in Romans 1 today. It's especially for you who love Romans 1 a little bit too much. Because it's always nice to come to church and hear the preacher condemn somebody else's sin. And you feel, you leave, You you can feel better about yourself. But imagine being a Jewish believer in a house church in Rome, and you've been cheering what you've heard in Romans 1. And then Phoebe kind of stops and she looks at you. What happens when these Torah lovers meet God? How does God judge them? Three principles of judgment. In principle number one, if you've got your sermon notes, I think it says principle number one, theoretically. God judges according to truth. God uses truth as his standard. Verse 2 of of Romans 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Not on the gospel, on reality. As life as it actually is. God judges us according to reality. Not the way things, uh, he judges us on the basis of the way things are. Not the way we would like them to be. That's not good news for those coming out of a strictly Jewish faith and finding themselves living in a Gentile world. Three observations about this. Number one, hypocrites do what they condemn in others. That's what he's talking about. The basic problem with the weak in Rome is that they're hypocrites. Verse one, you therefore have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment, you do the same thing. That great philosopher, Al Capone, (laughs) once put it this way. When I sell whiskey, they call it bootlegging. When my patrons serve it on Lakeshore Drive, they call it hospitality. It all depends on who's doing the buying and the selling. We're all quick to condemn in others what we will and do excuse in ourselves. It reveals reveals this this principle of God's judgment. When the judgment finally rolls around, God is not going to be confused by our pious facade. He's going to look beyond that facade and see how we lived when nobody was looking. He's going to notice especially the moral judgments we made on other people. Put a tape recorder around your neck or turn your iPhone on and let it record everything for a year or two and let it listen to how you judge other people. And then God plays it back to you and says, okay, this is your standard. How did you do to that? That's what Paul is saying here. We couldn't survive that kind of judgment. The judge, these Jewish believers, are condemned by, by their own words. Because they're condemning the Gentiles for stuff they're doing themselves. Because the tendency toward hypocrisy shows itself in very subtle ways. We'd like to rename our sins, don't we? If you do it, you're a liar. If I do it, I'm just stretching the truth. If you do it, you're cheating. If I do it, I'm just bending the rules a little bit. You lose your temper, I've got righteous anger. You're a jerk, I'm having a bad day. You have a critical spirit, I just bluntly tell the truth. You gossip, I share prayer requests. (laughs) You curse and swear, I'm just letting off steam. You're pushy. Well, I'm just goal-oriented. You're greedy. I'm taking care of business. You stink. I just have an earthy aroma. <laughs> we have a thousand ways that we excuse our own behavior while at the same time we criticize people who are doing the exact same thing. You want to know what of the main problems of marriage? You see your spouse's problems much better than you see your own. All of us, even the best of us, are prone to hypocrisy because we all by nature let ourselves off the hook way too easily. Observation number two in this text. Hypocrites think they will escape God's judgment They're in deep trouble, these believers are, with God, not only for their hypocrisy, but for their pride. People who think they are better than others naturally tend to think, God, he's just going to overlook my stuff. Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Well, actually you do, but actually you won't. Observation number three, hypocrites misuse the mercy of God. Verse four, or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The question's rhetorical. The answer is, is, is yes. These Jewish believers take for granted the mercy of God. God. They think, well, God hasn't punished me yet. We're doing okay. We're living, the, the, just everything's good. Therefore, He must approve. We, we look at the, at the effect and we judge the cause. But it misses the point. God's patience doesn't mean He's pleased with us. God's patience with us means that He's willing to give us some extra time to repent. Repent. We look at the evil in this world and we say, why doesn't God put it to to an end? Somehow as if the evil is out there and not in here. Why didn't he stop the 4th of July shooter? Why doesn't he end the killing? There are a lot of answers to that question, but it's probably best answered on a personal level. Why didn't God strike you dead when you said, I hate you to your husband? Why didn't God punish you? for cheating on your income tax? Why didn't God lower the boom when you spread a rumor about that co-worker? You don't think God sees it all? But His mercy causes Him to not judge too quickly. God waits because He knows how blind we are, how obstinate we are, how foolish, how prone to evil. He waits because He knows we need a little more time and He wants us to repent and turn to Him. William Barclay put it this way, the mercy and love of God are not meant to make us feel like we can sin and get away with it. They are meant to break our hearts that we will seek never to sin again. God judges according to truth. Verse 6 reveals the second principle of judgment. God judges according to works. Verse six, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Not only is it according to truth or to reality, but judgment is according to works. To say it another way, God looks not only at what you say, but he looks at what you do. Now, some people are wondering, well, doesn't this contradict salvation by faith that he's gonna be so keen on in in chapters four and five? The answer obviously is no. The issue is not faith versus works. The real issue is truth versus hypocrisy. Let me summarize verses eight, 7 through 10 in my own personal translation. Hypocrites talk a good game, but their life doesn't back up their pious words. The judge likes to boast about his seeking after glory and immortality, but upon closer examination, he proves to be a selfish pig. For that man, there is only tribulation and suffering ahead. Why are your works so important? Because your works reveal your heart. Whatever's inside is going to come out eventually. If you're angry inside, eventually you're going to be angry on the outside. If you're bitter, that bitterness is going to bubble to the surface of your life at some point. If you're greedy, it's going to show up in your actions. If you're merciful, mercy will come forth. If you're gentle, people will see your gentleness. Whatever you're on the inside is seen in how you live. That's why God judges by works. Not to establish the way of salvation, but to establish the basis of judgment. You're saved by faith and judged by works. That's not a contradiction. Your works ultimately reveal what's in your heart. It's either faith leading to life or unbelief leading to judgment. These verses reinforce that first principle that God judges not what what you intend to do but what you actually do. That's not good news for the weak believer, the Jewish believer in Rome because they aren't as good as they think they are. And guess what? You aren't either. God judges according to truth. He judges according to works. Principle three, God judges according to light. Verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. That's not good news because the Jews deeply believed they were God's favorites. They wanted and expected some special treatment from God. Many of them truly believed because God had chosen them as a people, He's going to give you a special deal on Judgment Day. And Paul tells them, you'll get a special deal, but you won't be happy about it. You're not going to like it. The scrutiny of God at the end, at the judgment, isn't going to say, okay, all you Torah followers on this side, all you non-Torah followers on that side, and, and that's the bad side. That's not the way it works. The judgment will be based on doing the will of God. It doesn't matter if you know the Torah or not. Judgment is not based on historical privilege, but on conformity to the will of God. And the judge of Romans 2 is shocked in this section of chapter 2. Their assumed superior moral status meets a shocking turnaround. God has put the Torah on the hearts of the Gentiles. What? Two things are very clear here. The Jews are going to be judged according to the law. It says all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Think Ten Commandments. They've had it for 1,500 years, you know. Love the Lord your God, uh, you know. All those commands in the Ten Commandments. But knowledge makes responsibility greater. And so Paul says, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. Just because you have it doesn't mean you're righteous, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. God wants big doers, not big talkers. And that's where these weak fall short. They didn't understand that it's not the possession of the law, but the practice of the law that matters to God. Chapter 2 is not going very well for them. The second thing he says that everyone is that everyone else is judged according to their conscience. Verse 14, indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and in other times even defending them. God has written on the hearts of humanity a basic moral code similar to what's in the Ten Commandments. Don't steal, don't, you know, don't cheat, don't you tell the truth, honor your parents, keep your word, all that stuff. It'd be hard to find a culture where there's that, that kind of standard isn't there. How can God judge a man who's never known the law? Well, it's easy. He has a universal code written on your heart. You know what's right deep down. Have you done it? And since every person has a conscience, we have some sense of right and wrong, and God can judge us how we lived up to that. You see, God sees all the actions that we have conveniently forgotten. When we cut people down or we speak with spite or we're sharp with our tongue, we deliberately try to hurt somebody, he sees it. He sees if we're unfair in how we're handling ourselves at work or if we're arrogant towards someone, you know, obviously on a lower economic scale than me. When we're stubborn and uncooperative, he sees that too. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Paul has used this common Jewish view of the Gentile corruption to point out their own corruption, their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a terrible word. We judge other people without judging ourselves. God says, I'm going to judge everybody on the basis of truth and on the basis of works and on the basis of light. Now, don't misunderstand where we're going in this series. I'm not arguing that what we've learned in the book of Romans all these years is wrong. It's not. What I'm attempting to do is to add another layer to our understanding of this book, the layer of a pastoral heart and reality. There's a sense in which Paul opens this letter with exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eyes and don't notice the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. First, judge yourself. First, be hard on yourself. First, God, show me my sin. And until we do that, our brother's speck is going to look like a log. And we won't see the log in our own eye. But once we've allowed the Holy Spirit to do His painful surgery within us, once we've confessed and repented and mourned over our sin, then and only then are we ready to do surgery on somebody else. And how do you know you've reached that point? Your own sins will bother you more than the sins of other people. The failures of others will not overwhelm you. You'll know you're ready to talk to a brother or sister when you don't want to do it anymore. You're humble. You've experienced godly sorrow. You're gentle and reticent and patient, and you've got some discretion. See, to simply gaze on the sins of others is empty and it's wrong because it turns us into those judgmental Pharisees who are quick to condemn. The eye is a very sensitive part of the body. When you have eye trouble, you need a doctor who knows what he's doing because the slightest mistake will have catastrophic consequences. Had a splinter in my eye once. I don't mind the dentist anymore after they gave me a shot in my eye. <laughs> but did I appreciate it? Of course I did. Sometimes in our rush to help other people, we cause more damage than the original speck of dirt that was in their eye caused. And what does the pastoral heart of Paul want to say in Romans 1 and 2? How are the house churches in Rome going to experience peace when their life experiences coming together have been so opposite? Well, you've got to deal with your own hypocrisy. They need, we need, to become people who want to help each other and not put ourselves or, or not put each other under a microscope to judge one another. Those most critical of others tend to have the most sin and those closest to God tend to be the most forgiving. We have no time to hate. We have no time to condemn. No time to live in bitterness. But how do you get there? We need the help of God to do a supernatural work in our hearts which is exactly the point Paul is making. Drop down to the end of chapter 2, verse 25. Circumcision, he says, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you haven't been circumcised. What's the big deal? So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, Gentiles, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. It's a complete role reversal. Paul says the Gentiles strong are going to sit in judgment on the weak Jewish believer. Paul's intent is to transform these believers by really redefining circumcision. He says in verse 29, no, a person who is a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The Gentile who becomes a true believer Who follows Jesus is the true Jew in Paul's terminology. Circumcision, it's just something of the flesh. And the flesh cannot bring about the transformation of the heart. That's his point. What does bring transformation? Well, we read the back of the book. We kind of know. It's the work of the Spirit. It's genuine confession. It's repentance. It's faith. It's obedience. It's the struggle with sins little s and sin big s. It's a struggle with the flesh. You will not find the liberation to love and to be holy. You're not going to find the peace that Paul so wants to be present in this in these house churches. You're not going to find justice simply by obeying the Torah. It's the vision of a lived theology, Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, that's the product of what? Of the Spirit. You will find that liberation only through the grace of God. And those who turn to Christ will discover in Romans 8, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit requires more explanation. In Romans 10, he comes along and he says, to do the Torah for Paul, to do the Torah in the spirit for Paul, means to believe in Jesus as Messiah, to confess him as Lord, and to believe he was raised from the dead. See, Romans 12 through 16 is the work in Jews or in Gentiles who are doing the Torah, knowingly or not, and they'll be judged by the gospel of Christ. That's, kind of, that's what I see as the point of Romans 1 and 2. He's building his argument that we need to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Perhaps today we need to consider a very simple prayer that the Holy Spirit would take control of our lives. Saying words isn't enough, but they could begin a, a new start in us as we see in our hearts the depth of our own hypocrisy. He's writing to us. We judge one another. Politics, whatever, masks, COVID, whatever these days. Bow your hearts and close your eyes. Let's pray. If you agree with me, just, just take this as a prayer that I think we need to be praying. Father, our problem Isn't with your word. We know what it says. And our problem isn't with other people, not even the ones who have hurt us deeply. Our problem isn't people who who, who don't live up to our standards. Our problem is within us, it is us. We confess that too many times we've been critical of those around us. Forgive us of our thoughtlessness. Forgive us for our unkind and hurtful words. Please show us a better way because without the working of the Spirit on our heart, we will not change. We cannot change. So fill us with your power that we might become truly different people. Set us free from, from our bitterness and our anger and from our judgmental spirit that we might have the ability to love one another from the heart. Make us like Jesus, full of grace and truth. And do it quickly. That this might be our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is really simple. It is the story of Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and he was seen by many. Sometimes it isn't all that complicated if we will humble ourselves in front of the King and in front of the Savior. Let's sing about that.